0: Well, today we are back in Genesis. So we just wrapped up a uh, probably a 10 week series, if not longer, in 1st John. And then now we're picking up a book that we had begun in the beginning of the year. Um, Before 1st John, so basically when we first tackled Genesis, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And that more or less covers up the history leading up to the patriarchs. So there you have creation. And it ultimately leads up to uh, the Tower of Babel. And then basically from chapters 12 onward, you're looking at the history of the patriarchs. So you have the forefathers of the faith. So we look at Abraham as we pick up today, um, Isaac, Jacob, and then eventually Joseph. So if you guys are, if anybody's here and you're checking out Christianity, uh, you know, we're glad that you're here. We're glad you're visiting. This is a great place to begin with as you're checking out Christianity. Because in Genesis, we are introduced to who God is. We're also introduced to wh- how exactly does God work with this people, uh, the people, the very people that he's created. And Genesis also to answer some of the major questions, uh, some of the big questions, so to speak, that other people, everyone should be asking. So where did we come from? Well, the Bible says God created us and he created us to be in a relationship, a perfect relationship with him. Another question is, what is our purpose? Again, in Genesis chapters in the earlier section, we see very clearly that God made us so human beings made in his image. We are designed to reflect a little bit of him to the world. We are created to bless others just as God has blessed us. Uh, But, you know, with all this talk about this perfect relationship, the obvious question as we turn on the news or look around the world today why is the world so messed up well again genesis has answers to that genesis chapter three there we see the people that god had created to be in a good and perfect loving relationship with them they rebelled against god god is the king and they rebelled and that more or less is the equivalent of treason and where jo- where god drew the boundaries that they were to love live and play and enjoy life men basically said i don't think so and they redrew the boundaries in effect they became gods unto themselves doing the very things that only god does if god determines what is good and right and what is also wrong and then men come along and redefine those boundaries they themselves are becoming gods gods unto themselves and because of that sin They therefore plunge the whole human race into sin. And so we are born into sin, as Romans says. We have fallen short of God. We've turned each of us to our own way. That's the story of Genesis 1 to 11. If you were to read Genesis 1 to 11, let's say this afternoon, if you have uh, time, you want to get another devotion in, you you, you see that Genesis 1 to 11 is sort of like this, this spiral downward. And it's getting larger and larger. And the sin of Adam and Eve then just continues to spin out of control. So in Adam and Eve, you have them sinning against God in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 4, after they produce children, you have the very first murder. Cain murders his own brother because he's jealous. He's simply jealous. And then later on, you have a descendant of Cain killing a little boy, boasting of his vengeance there. And then the the wickedness continues to spin out of control. And then God says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. It says the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So here men and women, they're pushing their very creator under whom they're supposed to live they're pushing him to the peripheries of their life the very one who sought to bless them and nurture them adam and eve given that given their sin and the people's sin they end up biting that god's own hand the very hand that sought to nurture them the wonderful thing though is that there is change in the air Genesis 1-11, again, it, it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse, but there is change in the air. Not because men found it within themselves to change, but because God in His sovereign grace comes along to determine to save His people, to make things new. And He does that through a man named Abram. So our story begins with sort of a street view of Abraham's background. I'm going to be referring him to actually Abram. Most of us know uh, Abraham. That's his name given a handful of chapters later on. But here he's still called Abram. And we're going to get into explanations of that. But I'm going to go ahead and call him what the Bible calls him as we track along with the story. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. And it starts off with... These are the generations of Terah. Now here again, this is the street view of Abram's background, right? These are the generations of Terah. And we've seen that subtitle before, because the book of Genesis is broken up into these sections that begin with, these are the generations. And then the focus of that section is what's produced from the generations. So with Terah, he has three sons. One of them is named Abram. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, again, to those of you who are new to Christianity, this guy here, Abram, is really important. You cannot underscore this man's importance to Christianity. Not only to Christianity, though. I mean, you think about the other religions who tie themselves, self-proclaimed, they tie themselves to the Old Testament. So you have Islam, you have Judaism, you have Christianity. So basically, a half of the world today, more or less. So three billion people tie themselves to this man abram okay so even if you're not a christian this should at least spark some sort of curiosity wondering like why in the world what's the significance of this dude but this guy is a very important forefather and his name is everywhere and rightfully so in scripture because god had determined that he this man abram would be the father of those who believe So in Romans 4, it speaks about how salvation comes to those who, like Abraham, have faith. So he's lifting up this guy, Abraham, held out to us as an example of faith. So since God wants us to learn about him through his dealings with Abram, it'll help us not only to glance over these seemingly boring details about his lifestyle, or sorry, his background, but to study them, because in them we not only learn about who Abram is, but who his God is and how this God works. And we learn about these things in the details of the story. So while this story includes characters, interesting characters, this is a story fundamentally about God and his dealings with man. Who is he? Why does he do what he does as he builds the Old Testament nation of Israel on Abraham and the New Testament church? on this man abraham what kind of god is he well he is the god of the unconventional the god of the unconventional if you're taking notes you can write that down what kind of god is this he's the god of the unconventional firstly did you guys know that terah and his family so abraham nahor haran and their wives they were steeped in paganism so idol worship It says so in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. And in that passage, which comes hundreds of years later after Abraham, God there recounts to his people what he did with their ancestors. So listen to what he says about Terah. God says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. God goes on to say, but I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I mean, how awesome is that? That the forefather of the faith is a former pagan. It's unconventional, right? I mean, if we were to go out and select some sort of man of faith, we probably would pick somebody who was already believing. But no, God goes to a pagan family. And it's not awesome because he was worshiping false gods. It's awesome because salvation is possible for those who do. God is a God of, un, uh, of unconventional dealings here. And it's very likely that Terah and his family, including Abram, were actually, as I said before, steeped in it. Not merely just pagans, but steeped in paganism. So Terah's hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is you know a city there that we read about earlier, it's in modern day Iraq. Not far from the northern tip of the Persian Gulf. Uh, Ur of the Chaldeans was a hub for the worship of this moon god. So much so that the city derived its name from this very moon god. So they're living in it. And it's not surprising, you know, as you do the research, uh, you know, as I've been doing the research and I came to a lot of commentators. They're all reflecting and basically agreeing that all of the different names involved in the story are all derivatives of the names of this moon god, both the male moon god and then uh, the counterpart, the female moon god. I mean, uh, Terah's name, named after this very moon god. Sarai, also the same thing. And then the place where Terah journeys to, I mean, he sets out to go to Canaan, the word says, but then he stops and he lands in Haran, that's modern day Turkey, so that, you know, they're having to journey a very far distance. They get to modern day Turkey, um, And that, too, is a place steeped in paganism, idol worship. But even though Abram came from a pagan background, the one true God had determined to save him. And then make him into the forefather of the faith. I mean, that is incredible. Uh, You know, right there, it highlights the fact that God is a God of grace. You might say, well, why exactly did God choose this man who comes from this pagan background? We're left thinking, like, even though, he deserved, even though he is guilty of treason himself, of, of idol worship, yet God in his grace and in his mercy comes along and says, I'm going to call you to be the forefather of my people. It's grace. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know, I teach at uh, Biola. And in the theology classes, we deal very heavily with how does God work in salvation? And God's grace comes up over and over and over again. And time and time again, the students there is they're realizing, well, why does God choose sinners to be saved? You know, so you're saying that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. And you just sit there and you think, that's what God says. God is a God of grace, a God of the unconventional, even though we deserve certain other things. He says, I'm going to choose you nevertheless. And we're going to get to how that reflects God's, the beautiful aspects of God's character here god is a god of the unconventional so there's abram's spiritual problems right (laughs) his heart doesn't even follow after god he has spiritual obstacles there and god's going to overcome those god also overcomes physical obstacles so you know we talk about abram being a father of the faith a leader of peoples you know typically you you think of uh someone being a leader of people and a father of faith you think of them as actually having produced people creating more people you know you and your wife you give birth to a son and then back then so much more was attached to having children you know your livelihood your future your family name depended on you having children Uh, so the hope is that not only that you would you would have one but you would have many children but there's a problem here with abram and sarah i mean not only are they pagans But what's right smack in the middle of 27 to 32? Just go ahead and look in your Bibles. What's right there in the middle of those verses? And it's intended to be there. Right in the middle. It says, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. As if we needed that explanation. But this problem right here is what kicks off this whole story about Abram and Sarah. The fact that they have no children. How are they supposed to be uh, how is he supposed to be a father of the faith without the ability to have children you know it's been noted that that uh, go ahead and to go ahead and look at uh 12, 1. we'll go ahead and read those right now it says now the lord said to abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land i will show you and i will make of you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed you know it's often been noted that in verse 20 where god promises to make of him a great nation that this is like some sort of cruel joke the fulfillment of god's promise to abram and sarah is dependent on the one thing they cannot do it's been noted I mean, imagine being them. Perhaps you yourself here, you try to have children, but you cannot. And you might know the deal. You know, month after month, this is a roller coaster ride of trying to get pregnant and then waiting, only to be then let down month after month, year after year. Abram and Sarai's inability to have children meant no future for them, it meant sure difficulty the wiping out of their names if you doubt God's word then it is a cruel joke if you doubt God's word then it that is a cruel joke especially because the name Abram means exalted father so if you're going to doubt what God says here in, his, in as he comes to Abram with this great and wonderful promise here then this is ridiculous but if we believe that God is who he says he is and that he not only promises, but he fulfills everything he promises, then his promise is better than gold. It's amazing, even kind of scary when we think about it, that God uses, at times, our greatest insecurities, and even what we might consider our worst of circumstances, to show us that his grace is sufficient, and the only thing that is finally efficient that's what's going on here with Abram and Sarah. And we know what happens if, you've, if you're familiar with Scripture. You know that this issue, they sort of flip-flop. Even though Abram's heralded as a model of faith, his faith too sort of flip-flops. It goes back and forth. And that sort of kicks off this whole story of Abram and the dealings with his children. And then his, uh, the children that come from different wives. And this is, a, this is a man who struggles. This is a man who's brought to his end. Sarah knows it as well. But God here uses perhaps their greatest insecurities, worst of circumstances, to show that his grace is sufficient for what they want, for what he in fact has promised. In the uncovering and the of the ugliness of our idolatries, and Sarah, Sarai and Abrams as well, by the Spirit's power, we begin to see the beauty and power of the grace of God, as His grace is made powerful in their weaknesses and in our weaknesses that's what god is up to here in this passage with this pagan barren couple so by the end of verse 32 abram and sarah in an, are in a very bad place they've left their home country they've left everything that is comfortable to them their family line which provides security they leave all those things but that's again what makes the story uh, the story amazing. God knows exactly what he's getting into as he chooses this particular man and this particular woman out of everyone in the planet. He zeroes in on these particular people to make sure that his grace is made known, that his grace is proclaimed, that his grace is sufficient. And it's in that situation that God speaks in their weaknesses. And we know from Genesis what happens when God speaks, right? He creates and he recreates. Let's read again, a little bit slower this time. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, so there you're indicating a shift. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This here brings us to the call of faith, the call of faith. God's word here begins with a call. It's interesting that according to Acts, Abram hears this call, not in Haran, but in Ur. He hears this first call or God first calls Abram while he was in earth sometime between the verses of 27 to 30 and in genesis moses under the inspiration of the spirit you know he's only giving us here the highlights he skips over a lot of different things but the things that are most pertinent that god wants us to know he makes sure is in there and so here moses here is being selective and you guys might have the inclination to say oh well what about this or what about that we just know that moses gave us god working through moses gave us enough of what we need to know it's not clear if abram told tara about his call and then tara sort of joined along with abram you know it's like him saying oh you're called to go there well i'm i'm just gonna take you guys and we're just just gonna go ahead and go it's unclear about whether or not that happened but that seems to be what goes on here nevertheless this was a call to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And this command here, go, is, it also carries the notion of this imperative to leave. As some of you guys' Bibles might say, leave, get out of there. Leave everything that you are comfortable with, everything that brings you security, leave it all, and then you follow me. This sounds like Jesus' call to discipleship, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like Jesus' call to discipleship, where in Matthew 16, 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But this shouldn't surprise us that God here calls Abram and Jesus calls those people his disciples later on. Here, those whom God calls, they submit to the lordship of Jesus, and they acknowledge him and him alone as king. And that's what Abram is supposed to do. Leave, Go. It's more about what it looks like to submit to the Lordship of God and follow after him. than it is even, I think, to go to this unknown place that you don't quite know yet. So as we seek to apply this to our own lives, uh, it's good. It's helpful to know that not every Christian is called in the same way that Abram was. Um, Without doubt, some are called to face persecution from their very own families and have their parents separate from them. And then separate from their parents because of the very persecution. Some are called to leave jobs that require employees to go about sinning. But regardless, every Christian is called to submit his life, her life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, whether at 15 years old as a believer, whether at 36 years old, my age or whether 75 years old some of your guys age right now i mean abram is commanded to leave everything that's comfortable to him at 75 years old 10 years after retirement age and just says god just says go you go you live your life underneath my lordship so god's word there begins with a call let's look specifically at the content of the promise that that god gives to abraham here after he gives the command for him to leave we come to a group of three promises Later on, we're going to get to another group of three promises. So we're going to look first at the first group. He says, I will make of you a great nation. Okay, just turn back. We'll just scan through chapters 10 and 11 here. You look at 10. Here we have the nations that are descended from Noah. I mean, you have like the sons of Japheth. And then, you know, you have like 18 names, you have 42 names. You just have tons of names. And then in chapter 11, you get to the Tower of Babel. All these nations are coming together. And then you have all the, the you have in verse 10 on, you have all the different generations, generation upon generation upon generation. So you're meant to think that as all of these people are having many different children, that God really has zeroed in on one particular person. And he says of you, you though you are barren, you though you are a pagan couple, I'm going to build a nation on you. A more fitting word is actually kingdom. People in Genesis, right? They're building cities. They're trying to find significance in the very cities that they're building. And here God answers and says, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. They got no security. They got no, hardly any belongings. I mean, they do accumulate belongings, but at that point in time, you know, they they don't have very much. So that's the first promise, a great nation. And then the second thing, the second promise is, and I will bless you. This is very much what God is about. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creates everything and everything is good. And then he creates people. And then he tells Adam and Eve, he says, every single tree I give to you, every fruit I give to you, ha ha, eat this, eat that, eat that. And and they're supposed to enjoy all of the blessings of God. Even Adam himself with the creation of Eve, he says, you know, behold, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's this rejoicing in this beautiful gift of God. That's what God is up to here. He, there he goes again. He's blessing more and more and more. God loves to bless his people. And it's not surprising that here in these verses, in just three verses, he uses the word bless five times. This is like a fivefold blessing of Abraham or to Abraham. In these three verses, the word bless" comes up five times. in three verses, mind you. And in this word of God, in all of his sovereign blessings, we see God answering the most fundamental problems of man, bringing about his great plan of redemption, his great plan of salvation. In these three verses. So all the problems that come up in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, he answers very much so in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So what's the opposite of blessing? The word is curse. Five curses. Specifically. And there you can think of the direct antonym. I know we're getting into grammar stuff. It's kind of nerdy. Uh, you think of the word bless, The direct antonym Curse, specifically, this type of word that's used is used five different times. And these curses that stem from sin bring, uh, listen to what it brings, okay? Loss of freedom, loss of power. It brings certain defeat and then an alienation between each other and also the ground. The curses bring isolation and marginalization, estrangement from society. So with the curses, you should think, as one commentator says, cumulative deprivation and increasing loss. That's bad. That's what we, as sinful people, bring upon ourselves: curses upon curses upon curses. And it does doesn't only happen from the. It doesn't only happen from uh, in the Garden of Eden. It happens consistently, right? The book of Genesis 1 through 11, you're seeing seeing sin spin out of control and people themselves, because of their own sin, spin out of control from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Tower of Babel there in Genesis chapter 11. But the good news is whatever kind of defaced world we as sinners create, God in his loving kindness and sovereign providence comes to bless through his powerful word. I mean, make no mistake, the one who is doing the rescuing here is God himself. I mean, just so there is no confusion, right? Who is said to be doing the blessing in Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3? He says, I will bless. I will bless. I will bless you. Even though you are incapable of bearing children, I'm going to build a nation on you. Even though you worship false gods, I will give you my grace and you will come to profess and believe and trust in the one true God. It is all God here. So the very problems that come in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, God undoes in the fivefold blessing here of Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. The third promise, he says, I'm going to make your name great. Now, keep in mind, this follows right on the heels of, of the Tower of Babel incident, right? And they're gathering people together. Look there at chapter 11, verse 4. And what's the goal of the people? What are they aiming at as they seek to build this tower that reaches up into the heavens? Verse 4 says, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. So they're right there determined in their own might and in their own plans to make a great name for themselves i mean contrast that with abram here there he stands in all of his weaknesses ready poised by god's grace to inherit the very kingdom of god a kingdom given to him and a name bestowed on him so that he would be the great father of the faith it's ironic isn't it that today about half of the world you know three billion people again they find some sort of association with abraham abram of the bible but how many people today know a single name of babel's great architects and builders with the greatest men on our side maybe we'll get a tower or two or we'll be able to purchase the clippers but with a sovereign god on our side we are made heirs of his very kingdom that is incredible why is that because god is a god of grace But of course, with all of these blessings, he was not to hoard them. He wasn't just simply the blessing wasn't to end at Abram himself. The passage says that he was to go on and be a blessing to other people. God blesses them or him. And then he calls and causes him to be a blessing to others. It's so that you will be a blessing. And then we find the next group of three promises there. Promise four, I will bless those who bless you. Promise five, and him who dishonors you, I will curse So right there, God in these two promises, he solidifies that those of the faith of Abraham would be blessed. That those who stand against God and his people would in fact be cursed. So protection and security are guaranteed with this sovereign God. And then you have promise number six. Having received all the other blessings, Abram as a blessing would reach the ends of the earth. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know that these sovereign pronouncements of blessing upon Abram, these promises don't just have to do with Abram, but they have to do with you. This isn't just a story about the redemption of one man. This has to do with all of us. So you know how the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible says Abraham would be a blessing to the world. Um, Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 17. And we'll start with uh, verse four, actually. And pay attention to how Abram is supposed to be a blessing to the world. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. The question is, who is this offspring that that, uh, God keeps on referring to here? Well, in the New Testament, over one and a half thousand years past, Paul writes in Galatians 4.16 now pay attention paul here 1500 years later says now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring now he has somebody in mind here it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is jesus god gives the promise to abram here and fulfills them in himself jesus is the fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant the promises given here christ is the fulfillment redemption is not just for one sinner one pagan one barren sinner here who submits himself to the lord but for all sinners who would have the same faith that abraham did who trusted in god who trusts for us who are after jesus who trust in christ the fulfillment of those very promises in god's sovereign plan the blessing pronounced on former pagan from ur god knew would end up ultimately with the peoples of the earth and so he would bring back his people from the scattered families of the earth hebrew or gentile mexican chinese european and he does that all he does all of that through the seed of abraham who is the blessing that is jesus christ This is why Paul says that salvation in Jesus is not restricted to any one people group. So if we look here, we see that we are people from different backgrounds. He says in Christ, Paul says, there is no Jew. There is no Gentile. God's salvation knows no ethnic or cultural boundaries because the one to come from Abram's line, that is Jesus. In Jesus, everyone would be called whether Jew or whether Greek. Romans ten, twelve to thirteen says this for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, this here is fulfilled prophecy, telling us that God is relentless in fulfilling his promises. Absolutely relentless. I know the temptation is to think here, like, man, fifteen hundred years pass. God is slow to fulfill His promises. Are you even sure He cares to fulfill His promises? I mean, the centuries—they just—they merely roll on and they roll on, and then what? One one day, God sort of remembers. Oh, you know what? I for, I forgot. I made a promise to Abraham. But biblically. A better way of looking at this 1500 years is to recognize that God turns over the very centuries that go by 1500 years. And God knows exactly what he is doing. Nothing can stop God from achieving his will. And through the centuries, through them all, God is determined, absolutely determined to fulfill his promises. And he knows the best time to fulfill them. He is relentless in fulfilling his promises and he desires to fulfill them because to fulfill them is to display his perfect character is it not god has promised to save sinners to give mercy and to give grace to everyone who turns from their sin and to believe and who believes in him i mean he wants to do this he's not reluctant to fulfill his word but he he genuinely wants to do that you know, I think sometimes people think of God as like an insurance agent, insurance uh, company. You know, when you file, even, even though you have that insurance company on your side, you pay for your premium, right? They're, they're on your side. But then when you file a claim, usually what happens, sometimes what happens, that insurance company can be really slow to fulfill their claim. I mean, to answer it, they don't want to give you the money. And so they're going to penny pinch and they're going to try and read in between the lines. And so you end up, even though your insurance company is on your side, you end up having to go back and forth and say, look, you, you, you guys promised to do this. Give it to me. God is not like that at all. He says, you have a claim. You want something? You draw from me. You come and you draw from me. You want mercy? Draw from me. I give it to you. You want grace? I'll give it to you. Come. You guys hear about that hidden cash guy? who's hiding cash in LA. Yeah. Have you guys heard about this hidden cash? Raise your hand. Okay. There's this rich guy who's being very kind and benevolent. He's hiding cash in, in envelopes and you got to follow him on Twitter and he'll let you know, like with a picture, like of a palm tree, he'll take a picture of the palm tree that this, this cash there. And so everyone's like thousands of people running around finding cash. Um, and you know, he's hiding like hundred dollars, $200 in there. And you got to acknowledge like this guy is cool. He's doing something that other people aren't doing. He's sharing the wealth and he wants to do that so that the people who find the money can share the wealth too. Um, but at some point in time, this guy's resources is going to run out. But then you look over here with God, who's always benevolent and who has inexhaustible resources. It's like with these people here in the Bible and in our very own lives, he takes pictures of his grace and he holds them out and we're supposed to follow him as we read his word and then we say give us more grace give us more grace and everywhere we go he wants us to draw from him because we see the evidence that god is gracious that he's merciful and that his resources are inexhaustible he loves fulfilling his promises So if you're visiting with this and you know yourself not to be a Christian, why are you not drawing on this inexhaustible riches of his grace and of his mercy? Why not run to him even right now as you sit in the pew? Because that's what he loves to do. He promises to give it to you. And he promises grace. Unsearchable grace. His love that cannot be measured if you would repent and believe. And he calls you to do that now. He's promised to save sinners, and he loves saving sinners. It's amazing that uh, as much as God is holy, you know, I think we generally have an understanding that God is holy, that he's righteous. As much as he is holy and righteous, so he is forgiving, loving, merciful, gracious. And so he brings people into his family when they repent and believe. He declares them righteous. You want to be righteous? I give you my righteousness. I give you my grace. I give you family. I adopt you into my very own family. And I call you one of my own children. Even though you might have been worshiping other gods. Guilty of treason. So that was the call of faith. We looked at the promises. Now we move on to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Here, what does this faith look like? This obedience of faith requires action. It always requires action. Just as Abram was to go and, and heed the Lord's command, so followers of Jesus are told to count the cost, to deny themselves. I love how even in the structure of this passage, the story, it's just so clear. I mean, 12.1, it says, and the Lord said, go, leave. And then in 12.4, it says, so Abram went. And he went as the Lord had told him. This is the obedience that led to action, even when he didn't have all the details, right? He had no idea how the Lord was going to give him children. But nevertheless, he went and he believed. He had no idea how he would make a great nation out of him. But yet, according to God's call, he said, I am going to follow him. Not only does this obedience of faith require action, it requires belief in God and his word abram needs to trust in god's word so look at his travels there in verse six it says when they came to the land of canaan abraham passed through the land to the place at shechem to the oak of mora at that time the canaanites were in the land so here he's passing through this land that he's about to inherit and he comes to the place at shechem the oak of Morah, and shechem is is basically at the heart of canaan a very important place that's going to come up again and again and again throughout the book of genesis and then also uh in other books but he's he's basically arriving at the place of shechem now the place probably indicates something like a pagan shrine he comes to this place there stands abraham abram a former pagan in a pagan land at a pagan place of worship surrounded by pagans and here you know you got to imagine that it's at that moment which the narrator includes and the canaanites lived in the land you got to imagine that at that moment fear would be bubbling up in his conscience right in his heart here is a man who is a follower of the one true god amongst people who are pagans having received the promise that he would inherit the land That the kingdom would stand for the one true God. The obvious question is, well, who's going to displace all of these people, God? Because I sure can't. All the Canaanites were in the land. So the obedience of faith requires not only action, but trust. Trust in the midst of the unknown, but especially in the midst of fear and doubt. Now we'll get into more of this fear and doubt as the story rolls on. Uh, So I won't spend too much time on it here. But did you notice how God answers Abram Abram's potential fears? I mean, if we were in the situation, we would fear. Look how God answers that in verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. With Abram at this point in time, he seems to trust in God. He knew full well that the fulfillment of these promises would not be according to his own timetable but by god's timetable and by god's power abraham could could not be a father of many people let alone one person and he certainly did not stand in line to inherit the whole land of canaan look at abraham's response standing in the heart of the pagan land of canaan and at the pagan shrine of shechem he it says there he builds an altar to the one true god and calls upon the name of the lord It's like in so doing, one commentator said he plants a flag for the Lord, the one true God of Yahweh, testifying that he alone is to be obeyed and followed and listened to. So here, that's why we read, uh, that's why we read Hebrews chapter 11. Abram is lifted up for us as an example of the faith, trusting that God fulfills everything he promises, trusting in the promises of God. He therefore takes action. This here is belief in God and his word. And so it is for us today. Now, again, we're not going to be called in the similar ways that Abraham was. But yet we hear the word of God from here. And this is what we are responsible for. I think it's oftentimes a temptation for us to think like, what is the will of God? And we know we're just generally called like Abraham was. And then so we end up saying, oh, you know, we, let's focus on some of these the, the unknown things to the neglect of what is known. We have so much that we are called to in here. A call to be holy. A call to love Jesus in whatever situation we have. A call to evangelize. A call to be faithful with all of our responsibilities. A call to love our brothers in the church. A call to shepherd our children well. A call to be a fantastic testimony of God's grace to the community around us and everyone we come around to. Uh, but yet for some reason we are consumed with Knowing or trying to discover, uncover the things unknown when there is so much here that is known. So are we called? Sure, we're called to submit ourselves to the Lord, just like Abraham was. But we know the will of God through the Bible. Concern yourself with the things revealed. As it says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but we are held responsible for the things that have already been revealed. So it says in Deuteronomy 29, so here we have this wonderful example of faith from this man, Abram. And we see how God works and who this God is. A God of grace and a God who loves showering his grace on people who don't deserve it. That's why he's choosing Abram. And that's why he chooses people like us. Even though many of us come from very sinful backgrounds, yet God chooses us to make sure that his grace is sufficient and make sure that his grace alone is proclaimed. That's salvation, right? Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in christ and his work on the cross as he died for our sins he bore the wrath that we deserve and the sins that we deserved so that we would not have to die and face death but yet he bears all of that so that we would be free justified declared righteous and forgiven of our sins and brought into god's family let's pray together Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace that is so clear here in the story. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who works in very unexpected ways, at least unexpected to the human worldly mind. Lord, we know that we judge so many things based on our own wisdom, but Lord, we confess that our wisdom is so limited. But Lord, as we see the ways in which you work, so we see your character, your gracious and merciful character lord we thank you that you alone have all of the wisdom all of the knowledge and all of the power to make best and good promises and to always fulfill them so lord we thank you for abram we pray lord that we would indeed walk in the same footsteps that he has already marked out for us as a man who believed in you entrusted in the fact that you are who you say you are And that you deliver on everything you say you will. In your name we pray. Amen.